Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're doing a second interview with Anthony Milevsky. From dealings in Russia to globally financing opportunities and taking top leadership positions in some well-known public companies, Anthony's got some great experience, insights, and opinions for us. In this episode, we weave through a number of subjects of where he's investing and why, his views on the prevailing markets, and his growing focus on decarbonization. He makes the point that if you were to find four of the world's most successful investors, you'll get five opinions. We also get into a hot topic of ESG and diversity in resource companies. We even touched on Greta Thornburg and her influence on the industry. I think another topic that we speak about that's worth focusing on is Anthony's point that the duration of capital for companies has materially changed. This is especially true for small cap companies. The implications of this need to be understood by junior companies who are duking it out to reach and engage investors. It's just not what it used to be. This is also a friendly and informative conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services. They've been in the Canadian capital markets for over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now enjoy the show. On the line, we have Anthony Milevsky who's back for uh, round two with another interview. So Anthony, thanks so much for making the time. Hey, Corey, thanks a lot for having me. I always uh, enjoy coming on and, and chatting with you. Yeah, this is, this is good, man. I mean, it's, um, we talked back, well, I measure it by episodes. We were episode number 34, which I think anybody who's listening now has to go listen to that because that was such a great intro about yourself. But times have changed. They've changed a lot. That was about, you know, that was back in February or so. So what do you say we'll start off just for, for the listeners, a brief interview about yourself. You've got a really great background. And then let's talk about what's going on today. Yeah, sure. No, um, happy to give a quick background. You know, so I've spent my career really as an investor at a private equity fund and prior to that at a, at a hedge fund. And I think growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I've always been interested in the outdoors, grew up fly fishing. I love fly fishing still. I've got a, a ranch in, in Washington State. We go to Alaska every summer, and and that kind of generated my interest in the environment. And you know that interest in the environment kind of slowly, you know, led to Russia, where I got involved in natural resources. And you know where I've spent maybe the last five or ten years now, in particular, is on this theme of decarbonization and thinking about basic materials as they pertain to technologies and practices that can help reduce emissions and and really transform our world. And so. 
you know, invested in battery metals, particularly interested in how that will really kind of change the earth if we can move to cars which don't emit greenhouse gases. Uh, we talk about it later, but but starting to think a lot about carbon. And so, you know, kind of driven to be part of finance and, and invest in the natural resource world, but also somehow use free markets to potentially make money while actually, you know, helping you to protect the earth. So that's a complicated thing, but that's where that's where I'm at and that's what I kind of set out to do. So I'd say I'm a finance entrepreneur these days. With your background in finance and the resource industry, but then also uh, I think a, a, a deeply held appreciation and love for nature and the natural environment. You could say that they're, they're diabolically opposed, if you will. But it's got you to a point now where, I mean, I, I want to get into it, the discussion of ESG and, and even carbon. But aside from that, when we look at the recent events with COVID and the volatility in the markets, how have you been managing through this and, and what sectors or what things are interesting for you for, uh, these days? Yeah, so I think, I think first and foremost, you have to put your money into pools and those pools have to have timelines on them. So like, you know, any money that I have saved for retirement or for my kids' you know, university education, I, I, I frankly, I have that in ETFs like the S&P 500, NASDAQ, you know, low cost structures, reinvest the dividends, and I just sit it there. And, and even when we had that huge sell-off, I didn't sell a single share. In fact, I bought, you know, on the way down, on the way up. So I, I think that's one pool of capital. So I'm a firm believer in any pool of capital that you have for the longer term is indexed ETFs. And, you know, I get why that's not sexy, but I just think that it's hard over time to be the smartest guy or gal in the room. Uh, with with that type of timeline, but you know, on a on a day to day basis, I've been really active in, in gold names, and uh, once again, tra- tra- trading GDXJ. I mean, you know, in this world we live in, where I think information is not perfect, but especially when you can't meet a management team at a conference and and you have to see them vis a vis a Zoom meeting, the GDXJ really captures a lot of where you need to be in terms of uh, you know the beta. So and can you then, expand on that? The GDXJ, what's that? What is that? Okay, so that's an index of mid-cap gold companies. Now, the J stands for junior. And in a lot of people's minds, the J would represent like a 10 or a $50 million market cap gold stock. But, but that's actually not the case. I mean, I don't know the cutoff, but I don't think that there's a gold company in there under a billion dollars probably. So mm-hmm. it's really like a mid-cap stock. Um, these are mostly producers. And the GDX is the kind of more grown-up version of that stock, and that's the index of the really big gold companies. And I would actually, to your investors who, who might listen to this, if you're sitting there and you've got $5,000 or $10,000, you know, I, I really don't recommend buying a single name if that, if that has a big meaning to you, that $5,000. You know, I think of my dad, he's a, he's a high school teacher. I would never tell my dad with this $5,000 to go buy a single name stock. And sorry, <laughs> sorry if you disagree with this. Uh, go for I it. Say, no. I would say, dad, uh, if you have the view that gold is going up, if, if you, you have to have the underlying investment thesis always, I would go buy the index. You know, like go buy the GDXJ, go buy the GDX. And, and, and by the way, that's true of everything. I mean, that's true of the S&P. Now, as you become a more sophisticated investor and you have access to information through brokerage houses and maybe even management interviews, you might be able to have a more nuanced perspective and say, well, you know, 
these guys have high grade and this project looks a lot like the one next to it. And, and, and you go, you know, and, and then you have more nuance, but with that strategy comes much greater risk. Now that's a risk worth taking when you get to the point where you feel you have the information. But if you're kind of the average Joe or a Jane and uh, you're starting to think gold is interesting because it is interesting. I mean, I'm long. I don't think you pile into any specific name. I mean, I think you have a really hard look at those two main indexes just because you get you get the liquidity. They're very liquid daily. And you're not taking a single name risk. You're not taking a single asset risk, single jurisdiction risk. So I, that's my view. And it's not to say, of course, that interesting names aren't out there. It's not to say you shouldn't invest in a specific name. It's just that until you have that information and knowledge, I don't think you should go there. Mm. It, it, you know, unless, unless that money, you know, it's all about relativity. I mean, if you say, hey, this 10 grand is nothing. I am a rich guy. It um, doesn't matter. Or, you, you know, you have some angle, fine. But uh, if you're just getting started on gold and thinking about gold, I think the indexes are the place to be. It's just interesting to see or to hear you say that, that those are kind of some of your mainstays of, of your portfolio. But I'm curious about the experience you've had in a macro fund. You were looking at a, no, a number of different deals globally. Given the volatility and, and some of the unprecedented quantitative easing we've seen out of the U.S. and all of the ramifications we're seeing globally from COVID, are we seeing or do you think we're going to go run into some deflation, uh, inflation, stagflation? Like what, what is coming? I, look, this, is, this is the most confusing time that I've ever seen in terms of understanding this. So you have brilliant investors, you know, some of the most famous investors at the twilight of the career who, who've had their vast, you know, expanse of 40 years of experience and, and you know, find four of them and you have five opinions. I, I don't know, but what, what I would say is I believe that when you print the amount of money that the U.S. printed, you're talking 30, 30, 40% of GDP, depending on how you calculate it, eventually you're going to experience inflation. And I think that's really the argument for the S&P and the NASDAQ going so much, so much higher. And, and mind you, it's moving inside of a focus group of names, primarily mm. tech names. But I think that's, that's kind of the rationale for markets moving higher. While the, while the U.S. economy and like middle America, you know, I talked to my sister who's a dentist and, you know, she can tell you horror stories of people not making, you know, making payments in these middle sort of middle America uh, small businesses, medium-sized businesses. And so I think what you're seeing is a form of inflation and asset inflation. And I think if this holds up with low interest rates, you know, the real estate market is probably next, right? You know, and, and so all these asset all these assets will continue to inflate. And the meaning of that is the following. If you are an average person and you are not long assets, and assets is broadly defined here as not just stocks, but also houses and other things, you're going to wake up in whatever it's five years, 10 years, two years, and everything's going to double in price. And if you weren't long something, now that house, which was $300,000 is $650,000. And by the way, you're making the same amount of money. And that's going to cause a huge disenfranchisement of the middle class. We've already seen it to a certain extent, but the unintended consequence of this money printing is going to be a further gap between the have and have nots in, mm. in uh, the Western world because of the inflation. And so I don't know how you resolve that, but I think it's inevitable. Now, you know, this isn't the end of the US dollar hegemony like overnight, although it probably is over 20 years, but there's no backup reserve currency. Like, you know, the Chinese want, you want, it's not ready for prime time. The Euro doesn't right. work. And so so that, that, that's not going to happen. Like, it doesn't suit China or Russia to destroy the US dollar because ultimately you destroy their economies. Uh, I'm yes. curious your opinions on this, Anthony, of like, 
the, the core audience for the, for the podcast here is management teams and, and you know, CEOs and CFOs who are managing public and private companies and raising capital. From your experience in both the, the driver's seat as a CEO and, and also as an investor, what advice do you have for them to navigate these times? I mean, what does, I mean, what all of this has implications to the investor, but what about to the management teams who are looking to build their companies? Yeah, so let's talk about the resource world or the, or the, the world where you're actually doing something physical, you know, as okay. opposed to the financial world. I think you need to hire someone or have a bank that you really trust, that you, that you think has your best interest. And I think you need to really understand hedging. But I don't necessarily mean your underlying commodity. I'm not saying hedge gold price, although that could make sense, or copper or whatever it is. But instead, I mean, you know, hedging your fuel, you know, hedging some of these basic material, material costs. Because I think if you have a known use for them over the next 12 to 24 months and the project works, whatever you're doing at a certain price, I think you really want to understand in greater detail hedging. And I think historically, smaller companies have not understood this well. And so even, you know, if you're buying sheet metal or, or I mean, there's, you know, any, any material, any material I think you want to hedge because inevitably when the U.S. dollar starts to weaken, and I'm talking about collapse, end of times, nonsense, gold bug nonsense. I'm just saying <laughs> as the U.S. dollar weakens and it will weaken. And if your revenue stream is in U.S. dollars, right? If you're collecting U.S. dollars against whatever you're doing, what will happen is those goods are going to go and become more expensive. And so to me, really thinking through the next 24 months is, is going to be important if you're building something. And I'll give you a really small example. So I own a piece of forest land and you have to kind of, you know, e even if you don't want to log a set of forests, you still actually need to selectively log it just for fire protection to have the right mix. So um, we were kind of doing some forestry work there to, to make the native trees healthier and you had to build a road in, and the idea was to break even so the cost of the logs that you sold for would kind of pay for the road, and then you could plant the more local trees and that whole thing. So, you know, anyhow, with COVID and the price of lumber on the West Coast of America, I ended up having to pay for the road when we had intentionally thought we would break even. It's a really small example, but I think on a larger scale, businesses are going to experience this. They're going to be down the road building a mine or a factory and if they haven't properly hedged out that basic material cost, you know, I think that they could run into a lot of problems as the U.S. dollar weakens. So that would be something a management team should really think about. And you know, everyone says, "Oh, I know how to hedge," but but just like you know, I'm a doctor. Well, are you a are you a knee surgeon or are you a, a, a you know, you know, it's the same thing. Like like actually, hedging is a very complex thing. I'm no expert myself. It, it, like if in terms of running a business, you need to have your bank or whoever you deal with help you. So that would be one thing I think that management teams should really kind of think about. And then, you know, the next big thing, Corey, and, you know, as it pertains to the basic material industry, I think is what we saw in the U.S. Uh, at, that spread globally with Black Lives Matter, ESG, and a continued focus on carbon footprints of different businesses. And I think those are very soft things in a way. You know, it's not like, okay, let's hedge our steel. But these are going to be, I believe, the biggest themes, the themes around diversity and mining, having management teams and boards that represent society, which is to say, you know, we have 50% of women are in society. Like, well, why shouldn't the board be 50%? Mm. Why is the um, racial diversity inside of mining 
not representative globally of of like you know of the societies that, that were being mined in. And then I think frankly, and we continue to see this, the big push for carbon neutrality, you know, the Paris Agreement talks about twenty fifty, but but really twenty thirty is a big cutoff date for starting to switch fuels and carbon sequestration. So I think those are going to be big wild cards that will impact people's businesses and the need to address them now because all of those take time to implement and develop strategies around. So, yeah, I'm curious, man. I mean, this is um, something that I I think, I wouldn't say caught me surprised, but I'm certainly interested that carbon and the world of of carbon offsets has has taken your interest and taken your focus. Can you expand on this? I mean, it seems that with the U.S. and and Trump stepping out of the Paris Accord, as I understand, and and even with the fall of the market and the and the volatility, it seems that environmental consideration seems to become not even a second or an afterthought, but almost just off the table. But you you were very interested in it and and uh, bullish on it, if you will. So. What's, what's the background there? Yeah, so look, outside of what we just talked about, you know, the, the copper and the gold, I think by a long ways, the most interesting commodity in the world are, is carbon carbon credits. You know, I started thinking about, about you know, with Greta Thunberg, like when this kind of movement started last year that, that really captured everyone's imagination, not just a, a select few people. Uh, I started thinking about what is the meaning of that for my industry? What is, what is the meaning of it? And what I realized is, it's going to be mandated one way or another, and probably primarily through investors as the black rocks of the world require ESG kind of standards to invest in, in, in the portfolio and these things happen because because you know being environmentally friendly like carbon credits and the carbon footprint kind of falls under the E in ESG. So I started looking at it and I realized that carbon, depending on the market, uh, in the regulated markets might trade in the $20 a metric ton in the unregulated market, it might trade closer to six to ten dollars, depending, maybe twelve dollars, depending on a lot of variables. But then you have Woodmac saying, you know, things like, in order for changes to occur that we need to occur, you need carbon to reach one hundred and ten dollars metric mm. ton. Shell says two hundred. IEA one hundred and twenty. IMS seventy five. So, pick your number, but you're talking about carbon needing to increase, you know, four to eight fold to reach and encourage fuel switching and carbon sequestration technology by 2030 in order to meet a 2050 zero carbon emissions Paris Agreement deadline. And, you know, that's just the high level. But you step back, and and I'll give you kind of an interesting data point. If you live in the West, so Canada or Europe, wherever, you consume about 16 metric tons of carbon annually. That's equivalent to five football fields of forest land. Think about that. Your personal footprint is equivalent to taking a chainsaw and cutting down five square football fields annually for the rest of your life. Hmm. Like, that's pretty bad, man. Like, and then you multiply that by everyone in your household. Say you got a wife or significant other, and maybe some kids, whatever. All of a sudden, you, and you start visualizing what your impact, your personal impact is on this earth. And you know, we don't need to talk about you know, climate change. We don't need to talk about anything. We're just talking about your environmental impact. And it is material and significant. Mm. And so I kind of wanted to understand that and realize that carbon is a commodity. It's a regulated commodity like everything else. And the world now has come to a moment where, you know, we do see value in, you know, in maintaining the only place we have to live in the universe. And so 
there is an, a kind of an awakening here, and carbon is a, is a way and a means to actually help protect the earth, and, and that's by protecting forests. And, and there's a bunch of different ways that carbon credits can be created, including just regulated credits in, in markets like California and um, the Europe. So it's a complex market, but it represents an amazing opportunity as the price needs to materially appreciate to meet the stated global goals. I think it's really interesting that you're saying this. Perhaps it's not surprising knowing your background and your interest in in the environment and nature and just being an outdoors kind of guy. But how has this landed with some of your colleagues, some of the people in your network? Have you taken flack for this? Um, has anybody pushed back and said this is not feasible? I can think of a number of examples where you know people say that having a regulated carbon industry to to cap emissions and so on is hampering production and, and productivity of the of the West. Um, but that's the point. That's, that, 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 that's exactly the point, though. That, I mean, that, that is the decision made by society. So think about it. What you're saying is, like, let's just pick a number, $20. Let's pretend that, that, that I haven't looked, but let's pretend the market in California today is 20 bucks for a metric ton of carbon. I'd like to take a quick moment to say thanks again to Olympia Trust Company for supporting this podcast. They've been supporting both public and private companies in Western Canada for well over 20 years. And they take a lot of pride in the personalized service they deliver. I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. Now back to the show. As that price increases, let's say it went from 20 to 40 to 60 to $100, just to pick numbers, right? The idea is that either you're going to change the way that you produce your widget to become less impactful, like in terms of like your carbon footprint. Or that widget's going to cost more, so your consumer will either buy less of them or be prepared to pay the money. So, you know, it, it's, it actually makes perfect sense because we're saying we need to have less of a carbon footprint, right? We need to have lo- lower emissions. And so the program actually works perfectly in that sense, right? It's, it's raising the cost to pollute. Uh, and, you know, like I, I've actually been thinking about launching a vehicle around this uh, because, I was going to yeah. say, Anthony, I'm, like, yeah. I'm not thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, so what's the economic angle for Anthony on this? Like, what do you know? I like, I've been looking at it. So, so the, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the regulated market for, for investors is very easy to access. Like, you can, you can access the regulated market if you have a Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs account. You just basically buy and sell, you know, it's $250 billion a year market, and it's easy to access. Now, it's not easy to access if you're a retail investor. In fact, it's challenging. And so I've kind of looked at thinking about ways to create an access product for, for retail investors. You know, I don't personally make a lot of money off that, but I, I think what is interesting is if retail comes in and starts buying credits, not only are they offsetting their own footprint hypothetically because you know, if you buy a share in the company, uh, you own some carbon credits, but also, and maybe more interesting, you're causing the price of carbon to go up because as you buy carbon credits, there are less of them. You know, in these regulated markets, they're only producing a certain number of carbon credits. And so you're forcing the price of carbon up, which means you're basically forcing the price of pollution to go up. So, you know, I haven't, I've kind of toyed around with some different ideas and maybe we'll launch a product later in the year to try to capture it, but less about making money and more about just giving people access to this, this theme and this aspect of our world that is going to have a very material impact, not just on mining, by the way, but on everything. When you buy clothes, how about when you fly, 
you check the box and for $27 or whatever, you offset your carbon footprint. So, you know, I think one of the things I want to do is make it more real for people. Like, like when you actually see a picture of five square football fields cut down of a forest, and then I multiply that over 85 years, like your life, you really say, holy crap, man, like, this is not good. And, you know, and do you believe in climate change or not? It doesn't matter. You don't have to believe in climate change. What you, what you believe in is we're impacting the earth. We only have one place where we can live. It's this earth. And we got to take care of it. Like you don't have to believe in any of this other stuff. I mean, I happen to, but you don't have to. All you have to say is like, I want my kids to live on a place that where um, there's clean air and fresh water. And so I think when you kind of start to see the impact that we're all having on, on earth, I think it's pretty powerful and, and you don't have to be an environmentalist to think, man, like, you know, we got to, we got to do something about this. Right. I like it, man. And I think that this could take us into a discussion of more of the ESG standards that, that you're seeing. And I, I'm interested in any of your perspectives on how companies can start to embrace this, especially in the metals uh, arena between diversity and, I mean, the, the social volatility we have right now and more environmental concerns and younger investors coming into the investment world, like all of this is having a, you know, a huge influence on, on what companies are doing now. And so with the ESG standpoint coming into metals and mining, any advice? If you look at globally, you know, there are at the very least, you know, approaching 100. There may even be more rating agencies and ESG consultants, hundreds, you know. Mm. And it's very con- confusing. You're a mining company, and like, w- what do you do? How do you address this? And I think, interestingly, the way that this is going to be addressed in the short term is look at your share register, and I'm just going to pick a name, BlackRock. Let's pretend BlackRock is a, sh- is a shareholder. Go and see what BlackRock's ESG requirements are for their portfolio. Mm. So this is a this is a moment where where actually average people have big influence because average people are the investors, pension funds, you know, people's retirement are the investors in BlackRock and all these company, you know, investment companies, and they're kind of setting the policies for their portfolio. So, you know, they're saying we can't own you if you own thermal coal, by way of example. So. Or if you own more than 10% of your, of your NAV is thermal core, right? So they're making these kind of pronouncements. And so the driver of, of what I think will become the generally accepted practices, which isn't that yet. There are no generally accepted practices today. That is very clear. It's early days. The driver of that are going to be the mega funds who you want as shareholders. And I would tell management, oh, it's, hey, look, guys, go out there, figure out who you either want to be your shareholders or who are your shareholders. And have a call. Like every major investing firm now has someone, or in many cases, teams of people who are focused on ESG and, and related issues. And you know, there's by the way, it's not just environment. It's it's you know, kind of corporate governance. It's you know, diversity. It's all these different things. And so I think what you do is you go out and you find these standards and you see how you can apply them to your business. Because just chasing the hundreds of consultants out there doesn't make any sense. And to kind of flip this around, it also gives a lot of influence to the average person and the average pension fund from a union or something like that because they can easily say to fill in the blank fidelity or whoever, hey, we're going to pull our money if you're investing in X. Mm. And, so, and so it's kind of a really interesting time where it may very well be the case that the SEC or whoever right, is not the regulator of last resort here. The regulator of last resort in a way 
might be the pools of capital. And in fact, today it is really the pools of capital who you want as your shareholders. And that's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I kind of like that. It's like the free market is effectively dictating to you that it wants these changes. So it's interesting, an interesting time in history seeing the, the free market coming around to dictating perhaps the better outcomes desired for society. Well, I, I think we are, we were in this world, like there's no other place in the universe where we can live guys. And if we destroy the earth in one form or another, like we got a big problem, you know, we're on this spaceship hurling around the sun, you know, 365 days a year. So I, I would just say there's that, that, that awareness. Now we can argue and disagree about how we achieve preservation of the earth. But what I personally see in the ESG movement is a realization that, that companies need to act responsibly and not solely for profit. And, and historically, they've acted solely as for-profit organizations. And I think now as a society globally, I mean, even in China and all these places, people are saying, hey, you know, that there are more aspects to this and environment is one of them and some of the diversity and, and corporate governance, all these are going to be part of it. And, and that's going to be driven in the short term by the big funds of the world. Hmm. Interesting, man. Um, you know, I, I wanted to jump to a question, maybe shift gears here um, and get your perspectives on something that we discussed in our, our last interview. Big funds will invest big amounts of money into large cap companies. But if we brought it down to those small caps, the Canadian small caps, the micro caps or nano caps by US standards, you know, sub 100 million market cap, maybe even sub 500 million. You made a point in our last interview that the, the duration of capital has materially changed. And in that, large investment funds, they can't hold stocks like they used to. Can you expand on that and, and maybe provide more color and more perspectives on, on why that's so important for small companies to realize? Yeah, so what happened in 08 and 09 was you had hedge funds who really piled into smaller cap stocks chasing alpha, right? Like chasing a return. Because when the market's going up, you want to outperform the market. Otherwise, you should just own the index I'm talking mm -hmm. about if you're a fund manager. Yeah. So what you had was they piled into every manner of a liquid name. And then when, and we actually just saw this this year, and when the market turns, it's vicious and it's no bid. And the bid-ask spread blows open, and it's gap down, gap down, gap down. Well, that was in, that was, by the way, a month or two ago, that was in the big markets. Can you imagine what the bid-ask spread is on a $100 million market cap company that trades, you know, $150,000 a day? Like, like, you could drive a truck through it, you know? So, <laughs> so, so in 08 and 09, these funds kind of had loose requirements around what could be in illiquid names, right? So, you know, that might have been 30% or 50%. In the post 0809 world, you know, these funds maybe have 1%, 2%, 5% in really liquid small, small cap names because they simply don't want to hold the exposure. Another thing that's happened, this is really important and people do not realize this, is the rise of the Citadels and the 0.72s. And the way that these funds work is they're, they are risk management machines. So they have a bunch of pods inside of them, right? And, you know, usually you were a fund manager somewhere, a junior guy or gal who couldn't raise your own fund because you weren't quite there yet. So you go to, to pick your name, Citadel Point Seven. there's a bunch of them, there's a lot of them. And you are given an allocation of capital, right? 
and they charge you. So let's say they give you $100 million and they charge you a percentage and that percentage is kind of your baseline that you have to get a return against. They don't actually charge you. It's all internally in-house. And what they charge you for in a liquid name versus what they charge you for a liquid name is completely different. So let's say you want to own copper. Like you can own First Quantum and they're charging you one thing, or you can own some really small junior copper company, development company, and they're going to charge you maybe a multiple of that. And then, by the way, you're along, right? On any given day, whatever's happening in the market, they might trim, they might just trim your entire book. So they might take you from $100 million of exposure to $80 million of exposure, just like that, like a, at the push of a button somewhere else. Hmm. And if you're holding a liquid names, it might be harder for them and the bid ass might blow out. So there's been this whole development and it's a material amount of, of funds. In fact, you know, you know, it's kind of where the hedge fund industry went for, for a lot of the AUM was into this pod structure that simply does not reward people for taking uh, illiquid risk. And so it's really, it's really hurt the junior mining business, I believe, because RAB Capital took a flyer on everything. does not exist. There is no modern RAB Capital existing out there for the mining industry. And by the way, there are a bunch of versions of RAB Capital. So that change has meant that liquidity begats liquidity. And, and I think you know if you look at the big gold mergers, one of, one of the drivers of that was to make an even bigger gold company so that every single hedge fund individual, every single pod and every single citadel of the world would be able to invest in you and trade you. It's become mm-hmm. a trader's market. And so what does that mean for the junior companies? I think it means you have to focus more on retail. It also means you know, it's more of a struggle and it's more of a challenge to break to that micro cap into, say, the billion-dollar market cap. I mean, that's, that's a struggle and it's a lot harder than it was you know, it, you know, 10 years ago, my view. It's interesting. I, li- I like that you dive into the history there, kind of how this has come about and you know, what triggered that and, and now the impacts on, well, for, those, for the juniors out there. And how that's uh, how that's happening. Anything else you're seeing? Like, wh- what other advice? I mean, other companies you're working with. I'm not too sure if you're advising companies, but you know, what are some of the the issues you you see companies running into, and and what guidance would you give? Yeah, I mean, I, I would I, I would see that some of the newer issuers, you know, the more the the newer companies. I, I think I would just say you got to preserve your cash right now because. Zoom meetings work for seasoned issuers, you know, people who've been around, companies that have been around and, and know some of the uh, investor base. But I think for new issuers, I think it's a challenge right now if you need to go raise five million bucks. So I think you got to be really careful with with your cash. And then I think you also need to remember that you can't just turn off the lights and go away and come back in 2021 because that's not how marketing works. Like Nike is Nike because they're pumping out ads every day. Mm. And so I think if you are a sub half a billion dollar market cap company for sure, you need to kind of think a little bit about digital marketing and, and, and be careful, be wary. There's some scams out there and they're not actual scams, but people over-promising because you don't understand how click ads work. But I would say, you know, Digital 257 is a company I've worked with a lot. Those guys are great. Dylan and Tyler over there. But you know there are other ones as well. I just think that you need to keep a presence up because 
inevitably the tape will turn, travel will start again. And if, if you're there and in the front of people's minds, I just believe it's human nature that people will look to you first. So you don't need to blow out a huge budget, but to stay relevant, I do think you want to kind of keep your name out there through some light digital, digital marketing in this time. Transfer some of that travel budget into some digital marketing. Yeah, and you know, you, the, the fact that you touched on digital marketing, I didn't think we'd go there, but I do think it is, it's so important, especially because, well, two points. One, the way you market a company, a regular company, is you get out there and you, you put yourself on, on you know, as many visual touch points as you can to create some kind of market presence, whether you're selling shoes or whatever. And then the other side of it is, when COVID came around, all of a sudden we can't get on planes. You can't be in front of people. So how do you get in front of the the audiences you need to to maintain the volume and, and liquidity in your stock and the the interest around the story? And that all comes down to the best practices of of what is modern digital marketing. It's interesting to hear you say that. And I think that the companies who are going to embrace digital marketing coming into the fall here, especially. Like I think somebody as so much as gets a, a sniffle or a cold in the office and all of a sudden the whole government's back to COVID lockdown again. I mean, you're going to need that to, to maintain your presence in front of investors. So cool to hear you, hear you say that. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's, it's just, it's just, you got to do it. You got to be proactive. So, so I think, I think I'm not seeing that by the way, as much as I think, you know, if management teams are listening, you really got to get out there and, and do that. You know, and like I said, Make sure you talk to a few different service providers because I can tell you, and I'm not going to name names, but there are a couple out there and you know, it's not digital marketing that they're doing. It's just taking your money and overcharging you. So mm, you know, yeah, make, yeah, make, yeah. Sure, make sure and talk to a handful of service providers because not everyone's offering the same thing. They're calling it digital marketing, but it's not. Yeah, no, I, I, man, I agree 100%. And, and I also believe that there's a lot of companies out there who consider themselves investor marketing companies who say they'll do everything for you from paid ads to content development to SEO to booking meetings, you know, the, the gambit. And my whole thing is that a jack of all trades is a master of none and you're not really going to go too far, especially in a world that is very complex. Uh, so yeah, I agree with that that sentiment. You know what, man? I, I, we, we've kind of meandered here, and I, I want to continue down that path of just kind of going wherever. I'm interested uh, from a personal side. You, you live on a ranch down in, in western Washington. You're, I mean, you've got some land there. You know, you've got a forestry property. I'm sure you've got other interests. But what do you study? What, do, what keeps you interested outside of your professional work? So, I mean, it depends on like, what do I read? I mean, I love reading books about markets, but all kinds of markets. But personally, I, uh, I really like to fly fish. So, you know, for steelhead and salmon. So, you know, uh, I spend, you know, a lot of time in the summer fly fishing. And then annually, I take, I take my sons and we go, um, we go up to Alaska with my dad. So I really enjoy, you know, rowing down these remote rivers and either drift boat or a raft and, and just seeing nature, right? And seeing these trees. I mean, I love the old growth trees in mm. British Columbia going up there. So I think probably my, uh, my key non-work, although I would say actually my hobby is markets generally. I just love markets. But um, if you step away from that, I think it's, uh, it's fly fishing and, and being in the outdoors, which kind of you know, go hand in hand. And then also I like to ski. Oh, nice, man. Are you big into the backcountry at all or slack country or just 
on the you know i, I kind ones. of i'm kind of up for you know i mean i'm not i'm not like hanging 360s and backflips anymore <laughs> but, but like i mean i i kind of i'm kind of up for whatever the group's doing and, and you know i actually love a ski town as well you know the restaurants so you know having been locked down because you know normally i live in london having been kind of held up here man i'm ready for, <laughs> ready for some skiing and i'm going to alaska in august uh with a group of of 20 20 guys so you know i'm feeling it being locked down is beautiful and as nice as it is here in southern washington man it's ready to ready to get out there but ready to roll yeah i guess so man especially from the the international uh career do you do you uh you fly fish at all or you know what man i've always been fascinated by it but i never have and well, it's something to come that down. You, have to, you have to come down sometime to my place in washington i'll take you oh man that would be amazing we live on on the bow river here in calgary and it's actually i've, I've been told it's world-class uh fly fishing with the, the Bow River that goes pretty much through the city and, and south of the city. So maybe I'll take a couple of lessons, man, but I would love that. That would be, uh, that'd be very cool. So uh, what, are you, what are you reading these days? There's a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Oh, wow. And it's, it, is like, it is heavy to get through, but uh, it's crazy. I mean, just like, you know, there's, this, there's one analogy in there about, you know, giving away data. And, you know, they, they kind of liken it unto people like when, when um, traders would come into some new land and basically, you know, swap just junk on the boat for gold and silver. Um, and yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see the analogy there. Yeah. Yeah. They're likening us giving our data away to Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, you know, whoever else. So it's, it's, it's a thick book. It's not like a page turner, but I think it's so relevant for like, you know, what's, uh, what's happening in the world. And the other one I just finished is called The Master Algorithm. It's about AI. Um, I, I invested in this AI company called Minerva. Kind of interesting. They're trying to do some stuff in, um, in the mining space. So those have been my two, two books lately. I, and actually, it's been kind of one positive side of, of the whole COVID situation is I've had, uh, had a chance to, uh, to read a bunch. And the other one I read, which is kind of, this is since we spoke last, which is remarkable to me, is, is Billion Dollar Whale. And it's about this scandal in Malaysia. And the thing which has struck me about this is Goldman, who I don't know if you dealt with Goldman, but, you know, really compliance heavy organization. Basically what happened was all this money, well, allegedly, I don't know. I don't know where it's at in the court system these days, but allegedly, you know, there was this account created in Switzerland and, and this money got wired to this account from Goldman. And anyhow, I just, I've just been blown away because my experience with these big banks, Morgan Stanley, all these banks has always been so compliance heavy. And I, I just found it so amazing that just kind of right now, I mean, it's happened over the last decade, that this scandal sort of transpired and with these big banks. So it's kind of interesting just to, those three books are pretty different, but those are kind of the books I've been reading in the last few months. These organizations like Goldman Sachs, and perhaps I'm getting, you know, I might be getting a little, I don't want to get conspiracist on this, but is there, is there not basically like there's a back room, but there's a back room, back room where deals that are almost so big and, and of those who are so connected that things can happen that people turn, you know, even the, the, the top echelon there turn a blind eye to? Uh, that may have been the case. I think the world, with, you know, everything you write is recorded forever in email. I mean, probably half the calls you have are recorded forever. So I, look, what was it like in 1980? Yes, probably. What was it like in the 90s? Yeah, probably. But I, I think today 
inside of those big organizations like that, I, I don't think, I don't think that's still the case. I'm not a conspiracy theorist guy only because I think the world is so transparent today hmm. because of the, the record of like everything we do. That's not to say people aren't doing bad stuff, but I don't think that it's somehow sanctioned by, by and large, by big institutions anymore. Now, that's not to say it wasn't. Uh, and I also think those kind of conspiracies, just in general, if you actually think about like these government conspiracies, like they can't tie their shoe. Like they can get anything <laughs> right. By the way, like yeah. like like, like I, I can guess, I could probably see what Trump had for breakfast today because someone leaked it. And you mean to tell me that like, oh, there's some global gold conspiracy like with like a hundred different actors and somehow like all the emails don't come out. Like I don't just, I don't buy it. You know, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. it's not to say people don't do bad stuff, and, but I'm just like, I just think that it's not maybe how it's portrayed in a movie or how it was certainly like in the fifties and sixties when you could act in a much more anonymous way. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Like, you know, the fifties and sixties, like Henry Kissinger and some of the stuff that goes on then. And you know, there's some just incredible stuff that, that could have happened back then before digitization. But I do agree with you now, especially now anything is, as you know, as much as I love a good conspiracy just to kind of examine it, I don't think that so many of them are possible because they really do become grand conspiracies, meaning there'd be yeah. so many people involved. And, and, and you can't, and you can't, you just simply, you simply don't, we live in a world where that's not possible. I, I just don't see that like that, that these things don't get out. Right. Like that's my view. And I'm not saying there haven't been some along the way, but by and large, I just don't believe it. Awesome, man. Well, Hey, listen, you know, we, we, we've blown through, I think about 45 minutes, almost an hour here. And um, it's been certainly enjoyable as, as I call you the most interesting man in the world. And I appreciate you taking the time. Any final thoughts or uh, how can people follow the, the work you're doing and the things you're most interested in right now? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think probably Twitter is the best way or, or LinkedIn. Both of those ways uh, are probably the easiest. And, and um, as always uh, catch up with you again. Right on, man. Links there in the show notes and uh, thanks again for, for taking the time and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.